Hello. <laughs> Joe Boyle, welcome to Mental Notes from my mini. Thank you for having me. Episode five. Can you believe it? I'm doing a thing. It feels official. That... And now especially official because I have the legend, the one and only Bowling Green, Ohio's answer to Captain America. Um, a, a, a true legend, true, truly. Huh. Anybody who knows him says, speaks of him in hushed tones, awed tones. Um, so excited to have my guest, Joe Boyle. And I want to tell you guys that about, what was it, a week ago? Yeah, that sounds about right. A little less than a week ago, we had a pre-interview interview. And we met at this crowded coffee shop downtown. And we were in this very central location and, you know, people, major thoroughfare, people going back and forth. And for, I think it was like two and a half hours. Easily. Yeah. Easily. We just talked and the whole world melted away. It was just the most captivating conversation that I can ever remember having. And afterwards I, um, I texted Joe and said, I feel sanctified. Like there was just no other word for it. And it was so interesting to me. And truly it was a very difficult time. It was an especially fraught night for you. Um, And I don't know if you want to tell everybody, I mean, this is a weird way to just jump into a conversation, but do you want to tell people, a little bit about, I know this is not the direction we were going to go in, but it feels natural right now. Why that night was particularly um, unusual. Yeah. So that was, that was a heck of a night. It was, uh, it was last Wednesday and uh, the following day I had CT scans because I am a cancer person. I I have had stage four metastatic renal cell carcinoma uh, for the better part of seven years now. And periodically, right now it's every two months, I have kind of are the tea leaves to read to find out what my life life is going to look like for the next eight weeks or so, where a bad result has you getting your affairs in order and worrying and thinking about course of treatment change and what's the next medication, is there a surgery involved, all that kind of stuff. Whereas a neutral or positive result is basically like a stay of execution. And there, there's, there's actually a word in the oncology community for the feelings in those days leading up to, uh, to CAT scans, and it's scanxiety, because you're, you're completely living on the edge. Your life could, could change in a heartbeat as that doctor reads the scans and tells you either... Yeah, your tumors are getting bigger and your time is limited or your tumors are stable or smaller. And so that's when we were talking for those two and a half hours, I was in this really strange place because the past two months I had not been feeling well. My cancer has not been behaving as a good lad. And I was very concerned that I was going to get really awful news that next day. Right. And, um, yeah, you were kind of like waiting for an expiration date, you said, you know, like, oh, yeah, from kind of 
which is breathtaking to think about the fact that you were then able to be so generous with your time and have this amazing conversation. And it was just such an incredible privilege. And so, like I said, I'm this empath. So you would think that after, and after speaking to you, um, and the thing that you guys should know is that Joe was entirely real. Like he talked about being afraid and he talked about being angry and he talked about being um, just, you know, the gamut of emotions. He's a hundred percent real, but I left that experience not feeling drained, which is how one would expect to feel <laughs> when, you know, you're, you're an empath and you care about a person and it's this, this incredibly stressful night and they're talking about everything that led up to it and all their concerns and and it was just so strange well, I just left feeling sanctified <laughs> it's such a weird word but it's and, and I, I, can... I, I I left I left feeling in such a similar vein I I, I got home after multiple hours gone and and my wife is like how are you and I was like oddly great like it was really good to talk through a lot of these things that very often when we have situations in our yeah. lives we talk about bits and pieces we talk about them in fragments and panels yeah and we don't talk about the entire storyboard and it was strange and wonderful to talk about the whole story it was it was just a surreally marvelous experience and i came home just going like I don't have words for how amazing this was, but, <laughs> and I like, you know, cornered every member of my family. Like, I can't, I have to tell you, you know, there's just no words. Like I just <laughs> had the most amazing experience. Um, but, and then I went back and forth like, Oh, I was distraught that it wasn't recorded. And because I was like, this, this is the thing that changes the entire world. Like if the, that conversation had been recorded, <laughs> it would have been the most viral thing. And everybody's life would have been 100% better for it. But then I realized it wouldn't have been the same conversation. So this conversation won't be the and same conversation as that. It's still going to be fantastic. I know it. But something I have learned through the course of my life, and I tell, I've, I've had a number, I teach high school, and a number of my students have gone on big trips. And I tell them, when you're on that trip, pick a moment that you're not going to take pictures yes. of, that you're not going to tell anybody about. Pick one moment of that trip that's yours, and nobody gets a piece of that moment but you. And and maybe that's what I last Thursday was. That. that was that was that moment. And you know what? It gave me a sense of, well, I now have I've had this incredible privilege, and with it, I need to I I want to do better by the world. Like I want to, because we couldn't all share that conversation. I have like this privilege and a responsibility to carry the feelings and the the insights and everything, and just be better and it really has just honestly galvanized me to do that so I cannot thank you enough for taking that time oh, please I, I I thank you it was it was a wonderful wonderful time so I'm just so grateful that you're now willing again to talk to us and and, so, and let the rest of the world hear the genius that is you uh, not no pressure or anything though <laughs> i got a i got a list of five thousand people that'll disagree with the I, uh characterization as I genius doubt, i doubt it i doubt it so um you know what let's talk about how you came onto my radar initially okay because we lived in the same town but we had no idea that the the other existed until take it away okay so <laughs> 
Uh, I'll just start the story in the middle. Yeah. Um, in November of a year, <laughs> my memory fails know. me. November of thir- 13, what? I think. Um, my, my doctor decided we were due for a change in my course of treatment. My, my metastatic tumors in my lung were getting bigger. It was time to get aggressive. And there was a clinic, clinical trial of something that everyone is familiar with now, immunotherapy, which is kind of the new silver bullet with cancer treatment. And so my doctor was telling me, you, uh, you're going to be going on this trial. It's probably going to start after the first of the year, uh, maybe February, March. Um, if there are, here's the list of side effects you could possibly have, which included, uh, you know, standard fares such as diarrhea, nausea, that kind of thing, but also the potential for uh, foot sores, for pretty serious hand and foot sores. And he said, if there are things you want to get done, this is the time to do them if the side effects will interfere with, with these things you want to do. And no sooner are my wife and I in the car from, you know, what was absolutely not good news. It wasn't terrible news, but it was not good news. Um, we're in the car on I-90 driving back from Cleveland. And I said, well, I guess I'm running a marathon this winter. And by the time we got home, there was this plan. Uh, my doctor, who is disgustingly excellent at everything, <laughs> he he's brilliant. He's articulate. He is a maestro on guitar. He is one of the top five cancer doctors, uh, kidney cancer doctors in the United States. Uh, and he's a talented runner. He's a Boston qualifying oh. runner. Um, so yeah, he's just, he's excellent at oh. everything. It's, it's absolutely amazing. But we, we kind of came up with this idea that I was going to, I was going to have to run my marathon in the winter. And I had a few friends who were, who were training about the same time for spring marathons. And so I kind of talked with a couple of my friends, two of my friends at BG and a friend in Toledo and said, okay, I got to run a marathon by February. What are we going to do? So we looked into some of the ones in the South, like Savannah and Florida, and we're like, ah, I don't know. Do we really want to spend money? Do we really want to go to a town we don't know? Um, most places other than uh, our part of the Midwest have hills, and we don't really like hills. <laughs> you know, what, what are, what are we going to do? So we ended up, the there was a group of about four of us uh, at at the beginning. And then I asked my doctor, I said, you want to come run with me? Cause he was training for a marathon too. He's like, Oh yeah, I'll come run with you. Uh-huh. So awesome. this starts out as myself, three friends and my oncologist <clears throat> plotting out like a gorilla marathon. So we, our, our town is small. The town in which we live is, is relatively small. And so to come up with 26 miles out of this town, you have to come up with a looped course. Right. So we went out and came up with a, you know, whatever, eight and a half ish mile loop around the city. Um, figured we could run that three times and that would get the 26.2, um, which is what I had been chasing right before I was diagnosed. I got, I got diagnosed as a, a result of some issues I had after a half marathon when I was still you know, 185 pounds and relatively fast. And, and so I was going to do this thing with my friends, and my doctor and, on Super Bowl Sunday, we were going to run this little marathon, just the six of us doing this crazy thing. Well, then my doctor um, talks to the PR people at the clinic saying, hey, you know, maybe for the employee newsletter, you want to do something on this. 
And the PR people were like, oh, no, no, not employee newsletter. Um, and they kind of pushed it out to the media um, in Toledo and in Cleveland. And uh, anyways, this started becoming a thing. And people from running groups, the, the running community in Ohio is just amazing. And and people from running groups started contacting, say, hey, can we come run all or part with you? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. Come on down, whatever. And pretty soon it's like we start realizing, okay, there's like 150 or so people coming down and maybe we need to like mark a course. <laughs> maybe, maybe we need to come up with water stations. We are going to have to find parking for people. And it was just Un, literally unbelievable the way everything came together and like our city police were like we're going to shut down the a couple intersections for you we're going to basically assign two cops to you for six hours oh, to awesome. secure the course and make sure you don't get run over yeah. um and and all that kind of thing and and it was just it was amazing the way you you saw like all small town america brought to life out of the paintings in in the way this community like came out for this just dumb idea that my friends and I had that was even dumber by the time it happened because the night before Super Bowl Sunday we got two inches of rain and then it dropped down to 15 overnight and the rain froze and then it started snowing on top of that so we were running 26.2 on top of ice covered by snow yeah. and it was that was a seriously one of the best days of my life awesome. so how I meet how I meet Kirsty out of this I should give this to you because this is where you, you, you have the backstory on how you guys ended up coming out. Well, I'm not even sure how I heard about this, but I was completely like enchanted. I was like, what the heck? This guy is running. He's taking this crisis in his life and he's turning it into this amazingly empowering, like community event and it was just so it was just so beautiful and so inspiring and I heard that you were going to be passing past our church building um, while we were in church and I guess I just that Sunday I sort of rallied a few people and I said you know what we have got to stand outside and cheer him on um when he runs by you, this is an incredible thing. You guys who aren't runners don't even know how hard it is to run that distance. And the weather could not have been more horrific. I just remember it was, you know, rare form. It was February in rare, rare form. And um, in Bowling Green with the, the ice and the snow and the, it was crazy cold and everything. And, um, you know, I was telling you that our church is kind of really, um, well, I'm not in this church anymore, but I, it's, it's kind of rigid in, in the way that it runs things. You know, we have, there's a three-hour program and very little deviation from that. And people don't just up and change it up or do different things during it. And surprisingly, it, it was completely embraced. Like everybody was like, absolutely, you know, we can interrupt meetings, um, and the whole congregation was up for it, you know, and went outside and there you came, you like hove into sight <laughs> with your posse. 
um, just with this huge grin on your face. And I was taking pictures of the congregation and you from the other side of the, the road. Um, and I just remember crying, just going, I cannot even believe this is happening. Just to see, you know, all the Mormons in their dark, in their, you know, all suited up and their overcoats and everything, like leaving their building and, and waving people. And it was just so beautiful, you know, and there's this guy that most people didn't even know existed until that moment. And they are just, their whole hearts are in it. Um, it was just this beautiful moment. And I just remember weeping, just being completely. And, and that was one of my cry moments. That was one of my three cry moments on the whole run. I, I remember. So if listeners can picture this, you're, you're in a land with basically no hills, but there's slight deviation in terrain once in a while. And we're, we're coming West on this road and there's some like institutionally owned property with some ill-kept trees and shrub and whatnot and so you're coming up this road and you're you're a half mile quarter mile out and you're coming towards it and you're like oh man there's a bunch of people out there and then it's like oh my those people are out there for us and it was Aww. it was absolutely incredible that that everywhere else that we saw people it was people we knew and these were complete strangers in the community out there to support this absolutely bonkers idea and it was so cool and you know and and what's more is to show that you know the transcendence of this is that you know mormons as a rule don't believe in doing recreational activities like running on sunday and all that stuff and um oh dear god i didn't even know i was taboo that's awful no but you know everybody could not have been more just enthused at the idea and just loved it I mean people were just glowing everybody was so happy and and so willing to do it and it was you know it was a time when I was already pretty disillusioned with the church which I you know I have since left and everything but whenever I like try and do a broad brush over you know all that was awful and stuff I have to really be honest with myself and go back to moments like that and go that was beautiful and we as a community as a church community rallied together and you know everybody was awesome you know, and there's Absolutely. many moments I have like that, but that's one of my, you know, top five when I think about that. And I was like, that was a beautiful thing that those Mormons did. And I'm proud of them and I'm proud to have been a part of it. And so it was just awesome. And it's one of my happier memories in life. And, Aww. and I have to tell you as well that, um, you know, I told you that there's a certain part of the woods. So after that, so I didn't know you before and I didn't know you after, but we kind of connected on Facebook. I think I might've posted a picture or somebody posted a picture. You reached out to me and said, thank you so much. Or something. Yeah. Like yeah. That. We became Facebook friends and um, now I'm losing my train of thought, but Oh, Oh, I hadn't, we hadn't connected like in person ever. It was just sort of, you know, that brief wave and smile and cry while you ran past and then Facebook. And then one time I was in the woods where I go for my therapy really and to run. And I was in a little clearing. I was on the phone talking to somebody and you came running through. It was, I think, you know, you were like bouncing back. It was a good moment for you and your treatment. And um, yeah. Yeah. And you were just trucking along. And as a runner, um, and I use that term loosely, but I know that um, the etiquette is when somebody is running, 
and you know they're obviously on a mission you don't stop them and talk to them it's just not okay and I couldn't help myself I was just like the celebrity sighting <laughs> and I was like Joe Boyle you know I like forgot I was talking on the phone to somebody I just completely started ignoring and I was like celebrity sighting and, ah. and I remember you like so graciously stopping your watch and talking to me and it was so lovely and so whenever I enter into that part of the woods I think of it as a Joe Boyle area and it was so funny I got an injury that just lingered and lingered last year and it would always crop up at that point in the loop because that was the mileage you know it was a couple of two and a half miles in or whatever it would start to hurt and it was always in the Joe Boyle clearing and I was like if Joe can do it so can I it was just just this like little inspiring thing like okay if you have to walk you'll walk but you're gonna make this happen like it's gonna be okay like stop being because I'd get mad you know right irritating injury and then I was like just shush Oh, I no, I because I'm here to say like, OK, I, I am not for a minute going to say that cancer is fun, yeah. but I will absolutely say that there were times when I was still running where I'd get injured. And that was about a zillion more times more infuriating than cancer, <laughs> like knee problems, hip problems always made me angrier. than It cancer. just does make you angry when the body and the spirit is so willing. And then the stupid twingy knee is like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah like everything else like, is good to go so thank you for 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 validating that you didn't have to do that but, <laughs> <laughs> but it yeah but it just always inspires me and it just gives me this like this little boost so you have you know even though you've been sort of not even a, a real you've been sort of peripheral it's it you've changed my life in more ways than you realize so thank you so much and so that's why it was an extra thrill to talk to you in person and and all of this so um let's talk about i don't know i i don't even know where to go right now because there's so much good stuff okay well joe is a teacher at um in toledo describe your school situation so i i am a proud teacher in toledo public schools um which is uh a big urban district that has exactly the same blessings, exactly the same successes and exactly the same challenges as any other big urban district that you can put in your head right now. Um, And the school that I'm at is, first of all, it's gorgeous. And if you're a Harry Potter person and you picture Hogwarts in your head, that's not far from the actual truth of where I, where I work. It's a big uh, 1914 build uh, three stories, a giant vaulted room. That's the library now that used to be the dining hall. Um, mm-hmm. and tunnels. It's just, it's like the coolest workplace I could ever imagine. And I mean, that's just the building part. Our community is also really, really great. Um, I'm on the East side of Toledo and the East side is kind of an a neighborhood that's first of all insulated by the river that's what we're east of um it's insulated by the river it's insulated by a lot of railroad tracks and and highways and uh the lake up to one end (coughs) excuse me and um it's a neighborhood that is a you know there's no mistaking it for anything but an urban neighborhood but so many urban neighborhoods have really mobile 
situations with their residency. And our school is totally different where every single class period, I've got no less than five people whose parents went to wait, grandparents went to wait, some of their great grandparents went to wait. So it's, it's almost like that small town feel in a great big urban school district. And it's just, it's cool. It's a magical place. Well, I enjoy your photos. Like you, you've sort of got a photo project um, featuring the school. You said it's called Wait. Yeah, it's uh, named Morrison Remick Wait High School after a uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who came from Toledo. Okay. Well, I, I've enjoyed. You know, you you take such interesting pictures of it. I've enjoyed them on Instagram over the 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 years. Um, and it does, honestly, it does look like everything you describe. So, and what's your, um, so talk to me about, you know, what's your, well, you've got a very special project. My thing. Yeah, your this thing. is, so this is my, my thing. Uh, what I, what I, I do every day. I'm, I'm a social studies teacher. Um, and this was a, a second career for me after I'd worked in, uh, in journalism and communications for a while and, kind of had this post 9-11 realization that what I was doing with my life didn't matter. And I quit my job, went back to school, became a social studies teacher, hoping to, you know, I, I, I grew disillusioned of the idea that anything I wrote was ever going to change the world and thought it's time to go back to the neighborhood and, you know, work with real people instead of these vague, big ideas. And, and, so I went back to become a history teacher and I just kind of trundled along for a few years teaching typical history classes. And, and then uh, in um, November, 2010 uh, there was uh, an opportunity to, to go on a scholarship trip uh, to study at George Washington university and go to France doing world war II. And I had grown up my whole entry point to history was the story of one of my great uncles who was killed in Normandy in July of 44. And so this kind of on a look, then sure as anything, Valentine's day of 11, we got picked. Um, and that's kind of where my professional life and personal life come together is that six weeks after that, I get diagnosed with cancer and I couldn't, we got picked for this trip and I couldn't do it. Um, but the organization that, 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 performs this every year is uh, National History Day out of the University of Maryland, um, which is a fabulous, fabulous program and organization. And they got back in touch with me a year later in January of 12, after I had kind of recovered from um, my cancer surgery and a couple other things that had gone wrong uh, subsequently. And they said, we have one opening. If you want to pick a kid, you can go. And so I got to select another student. And then in uh, the summer of 12, uh, we got to go to Normandy and this was absolutely a religious experience for me. My, my great uncle, when I had, when I was in college for my undergrad, I had been pursuing a degree in journalism and then my grades slipped and I couldn't do the journalism program. So I had to find a backup program. And I was like, well, you know, I'm into history. I'm into world war II from uncle Paul's story. And I became a history major. And then when it came time for my thesis for my BA, I decided to research his life. And I ended up talking to my, at that time, surviving great uncles and pieced together a lot of his story. 
And then when I went after 9-11, when I, when I went back to school and I'm, I'm getting certified to be a teacher and teaching history instead of journalism, it was, it was Paul I was thinking of. And, and it's really not overstating things to say that even by 2012, Paul had gotten me through college and he had gotten me through a career change and being at his grave at Normandy American cemetery was, and especially after the cancer diagnosis was just this, this, this moment that, that shook me to my core. And out of that, out of the program that, that they do with the Normandy Institute, um, a couple of other teachers and I said, we could do a project like what these kids on this, this program did and have our kids research a man who was killed in the second world war and is buried in an overseas cemetery. And when I got home, I couldn't let go of that idea and I kept playing with it. And I went to the library and found a a book that had the list of everyone from Lucas County who was killed in the, in the army and army air force in the second world war found another book that had the Navy dead and came up with this list of about 1,100 people from Toledo who had been killed in the war. And basically you had their name and their serial number and that's it. Their stories were lost. Mm -hmm. So I started developing this project off of that where I would teach a class, a semester elective on the second world war. And I, I took that through our board and our curriculum review and they were fabulous. And we got the, we got the class uh, authorized and the centerpiece of it is this research project where each year, one of my, each one of my kids, and I have about 60 kids in the class every year, um, each one of those kids gets the name of one guy from Toledo killed in the Second World War, and I try to match them as close to their home address as possible. So at the beginning of the year, when I get my students, I have all the addresses for Toledo's war dead now, and I try to match these kids with people who came from their neighborhood. Um, but they generally don't know that all they have is this name oh and they have to go research census records and, and church records and birth certificates and all that kind of stuff to try and figure out who this guy was and, and sort of bring him back to life by speaking his name. And so we started that class in the 13, 14 school year. Um, and we've now had about 600 of the 1100 stories told. And, um, this is, I do not want to overstate this at all, but this is basically my obsession. This is, this has kind of become my Moby Dick that I'm, I'm following to the ends of the earth. And when my health took a turn this, this last November, um, and I had to really kind of start seriously thinking about what I want to get done on this earth. Um, that was pretty much one of the top two things on my, on my goals list was, I have to finish this project. I have to get the definitive list done of the, of the Toledo men. So someone can keep running with this project after I'm gone. Wow. And, and it's been, um, I think you, you said that, you know, your goal is that the kids cry at some point. Oh yeah. And they do. Yeah. I do. (laughs) uh, Yeah. This, this is one of those projects that, can easily go in a few different directions. And the last thing I want this to be is something where everybody's wearing American flag t-shirts and cowboy hats chanting America, America, war is great. Um, (laughs) What I'm trying 
to get these kids to understand is what is the cost of war? Right. These, these men are the cost of war. And most of them were very close to your age. And as often as possible, I try to get men who went to the same high school these kids are at or the same elementary school and draw, draw that connection for them. Because for so many of our kids today, especially for children of color, their, their history has systematically been stolen from them over the years. And it's, it's hard to find those anchor points. Like what do I hold on to that makes me part of the story of Toledo or that makes me part of the story of Morris Narwaite High School. And this is, this is one of those things that my, my prayer every year is that the kid develops the kind of connection where they're giving this eulogy and it, and it moves them to tears. Uh, just last night, I got an email uh, with two pictures attached from a girl who took the class the first year in 2013, who is now uh, finishing college, just out of college. And it was coming up on her guy's birthday. So she went to his grave to decorate his grave. Wow. And that's, she's not the only one. There's a handful of them that have, oh have kept doing that. And it's just, as a teacher, that's, that's exactly what you want these kids to get out of this is that real connection to the past, not, not some superficial kind of rah-rah connection to the past. Right. That is so beautiful because that's, that's changing hearts and minds right there. I mean, when a kid is that connected that years later, they're remembering the birthday and decorating the grave. That's incredible. That's, that's, you know, you've made a difference. You've got it. It's, um, it's, I jotted down two thoughts when we were discussing this, and I'm not sure if I interpreted them and wrote them in my own words, if I quoted you, but one of them is that you were trying to get across that war is not a game. Um, And you sort of individualized war and put a face to it, which I think is such a service for, you know, it's, um, I don't know. It's one of those things, you know, I am, I'm not a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination. I, I, you know, my, my personal view here is that there are some conflicts that are inevitable and necessary. And I, I do look at the second world war through that lens. However, I think in a lot of ways we have made war into a game and, and literally in, in the ways we're doing digital training and digital maneuvers. Now we're even, even the servicemen that are preparing to go overseas we make war into a right. game for them, much less for the kids that are playing right. Call of Duty and this game and that yeah. game. And, and I, I wanted to kind of break, break the kids out of that. War is a, a bunch of old guys. You know, war is about the generals and the admirals and the grand plans. And, and instead say, no, war is, war is about 20 million people about your age being asked to do awful things to each other. Right, right. Um. And then something else you said that was really moving to me is that you sort of felt in an individual way, this is therapeutic or necessary or compelling to you because you felt some sort of cosmic debt, I think you said, to help these people not be forgotten. And that's translated to your desire not to be forgotten. Um, And it's it's become extra personal to you with that sense of, you know, mortality that you're that you're existing with every moment of every day right now. Absolutely. When, 
you know, this whole Fallen Hero program started when I was already diagnosed with cancer. And it's really only in the past couple months, possibly weeks, that I I really started realizing what what the program means to me personally. I've always I've always felt that I owed these guys, that I I owe it to them to make sure their stories get told. And I don't know if I can bust off on a little track here for a second. Of course. Um, in, in 2012, I had a, a positively awful treatment uh, up at the University of Michigan called Interleukin-2. And they, they bring you, in the, it's an inpatient thing. You're basically in the ICU and all but name only. And they administer this drug to you every four hours um, for a couple of weeks. And every four hours you get this injection of the drug and they basically try to run you down as close as they can to, if not death, at least danger. And then let up and let you get better again. Mm-hmm. And then four hours later, if you can take it, hit you again with torture. it. And torture. they, oh yeah, yeah. And, and they told me one of the side effects could be uh, delusions that you, you could become delusional in parts of this. And there were parts of this uh, that were like awesome in the delusion. Like my wife was sitting in there with me and I'm like, do you see the little village? And she's like, what little village? And I'm like, the one on my meal table. It's adorable. Like there's this great little, this little hobbit village and these wonderful little creatures. And so some of the, some of them were like Cheech and Chong delusions, but, but um, this one night in my, in my second week of treatment up there, which was the, the, the worst of them, um, my blood pressure crashed really bad. And I knew it was bad when I saw the numbers, but I didn't realize how bad uh, you can generally tell how much trouble you're in, in the hospital by how many people walk in and how quickly they walk in. And I was with it enough to realize something bad is happening here. And there's all these nurses and all these doctors coming in and, and they're doing this and they're pumping fluids and that to try it. Cause my blood pressure was crashing. It was something like 80 over 30 or something. And they're, they're all coming in there to, to try and stabilize me. So they don't have to send me to the real ICU where treatment would have to stop and everything. And um, in that moment, as, as clear as I'm seeing you in the minivan, um, the, my grandparents are there alongside the bed with me and they're telling me it's okay. And, and Paul holds my hand. Um, And keep in mind, this is a guy who was dead, you know, 30 years before I was born and he's there with me in that moment. And, you know, in, in my head, I understand that was a delusion, but like in, uh, in the last Harry Potter movie, you know, Harry's in, Harry's knocked out and he's in this, this like giant white, is it heaven? Is it something? And, and he says to Dumbledore, you know, uh, is this real or is this in my head? And he goes, uh, well, just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real. And I, I think about, I, I think about that all the time with that, that experience with Paul that, that was happening just as I had been to his grave six weeks earlier, four weeks earlier. And, um, and just as I was trying to get this world war two class off the ground and, so I, I'm telling that story to kind of get the, give the idea here that I, I very much feel a debt to him specifically 
and then to the larger community of guys from Ohio that were killed in the war generally. And what I, what I'm just now to, to bring this finally around, what I'm just now kind of realizing about all this is that I've been so obsessed with keeping their memories alive because the scariest thing about all of this is, is the idea that someday you will be forgotten and Anybody who's done family research, family history research knows that you get to you get to five generations out and it starts getting tough and you might only know a name. And it's such a sobering realization to realize that in the not so distant historical future, you will be nothing more than a name. And if if even that, if people can even find that. And that's where I kind of realized, oh, so this is why I've been so obsessed with this this is why I've pushed the kids so hard on this. It's, it's out of my own fears and demons. Well, wow. That's, that's intense. I had so many thoughts. It is. I had so many thoughts while you were talking and now it's just that, that last sentence really kind of blew me away and now they're all gone. Um, well, I guess, okay. I don't, I don't, I can't, I'm not qualified to even comment on this, but it was, Oh, neither am I. But I mean, (laughs) don't you feel like um, it was kind of, you know, it is this cosmically beautiful thing that you were brought to to this project right before you yourself got diagnosed so that you do have this personal investment in it. And maybe, you know, that feels like it was all supposed to be, you know. Oh, yeah. And, And so... A hundred percent. It feels like there's a reason it's, there's a reason. And I also wanted to comment that, you know, all of this was before the internet, but the internet never dies. So I don't believe now that people are going to be forgotten in the same way for good or for ill. So that claim to that, my friend, but you, (laughs) you, no matter when it is that you, uh, you know, shuffle off the mortal coil and i hope it's a very long time from now will never be forgotten because your impact is is profound so um it's going sort of lever this is a, an awkward segue but um we talked about society, just going from war to machoism we talked about how society defines masculinity and your experience with that throughout your life, really. Um, yeah. And, and how this, this experience has kind of given you closure in a way that you, because you've struggled for a long time about sort of finding your purpose, your yeah. purpose as a man. Let's talk more about that. I, so I was so right. So our, I, I would almost say that, throughout the Americas and not America, like from the lumberjack mentality in Canada through the United States to the machismo of, of Latin America. I think in the Americas, at least there is a very specific definition of masculinity that deals with physical strength and bravado and winning fights and that kind of thing. Like, I think that's maybe uniquely the Americas thing if it's certainly not a uniquely american thing but maybe it's maybe it's a thing of the americas is this 
this definition of, of hyper-masculinity through physical feats and things that quote, make you a man. Right. Um, and so all of us, all of us grow up with that. All of us are, are surrounded by that. And, and in, in my own family, um, my, my dad and uncles were tremendous athletes. Um, my, many of my cousins were really great athletes as well. Um, and that is not, uh, both of my grandfathers were great basketball players. And, um, and that was not where my talents fell in the least. And seventh grade, I, I remember seventh grade being when I learned that I didn't have the gift everybody else or seemingly every other guy had. Um, I, <laughs> I went to a small rural district out, outside of, uh, outside of Toledo and uh, there were probably 70 guys that would have been uh, like 70 males in my what would have been my graduating class. And we had seventh grade basketball tryouts and there were about 20 guys who went out the team. I was the very first one cut. I had the <laughs> least skills out of this group of 20, which uh. had those had those 20 been, you know, Michael Jordan, Oscar Robinson and LeBron James. I'd be like, oh, well, you know, OK. <laughs> unrealistic but that group of dudes went zero and 10 that season and uh, as an eighth grader i'm looking at that i was the first guy cut from a team that didn't win a game and and that really kind of put my uh my physical manhood in in deep relief right away um and and the thing is like i remember how proud my grandpa was of me when I was, when I was going out for basketball and he wrote me this letter, like, oh, you're a physical young man. And I remember my days of basketball and it was this whole rah, rah, and, and I'm gone. Like the first time they see me touch a basketball, they're like, get out of here with that stuff. And, um, so like between, between being really, really unathletic and my, my interests being more in writing and theater and reading and research, like, a, I don't have the physical gifts, and then B, I'm kind of into nerds, and I was hugely into comic books by that point in my life. I'm kind of already knee-deep in nerd culture, <laughs> and so then by the time I got out of, out of high school, I started thinking, well, you know, it's, it's, time, it's time to prove myself. I have to prove myself a man, and so if I, if I go back two generations, my great-uncles one was killed in the second world war. Another was in an artillery unit in the war. Uh, another was in the coast guard and got badly injured in the war. And then uh, some of my cousins had enlisted and uh, leaving high school, there were friends of mine who enlisted and from, from my small hometown guys who enlisted right away after graduation. And I was kind of like, all right. So the, the uncle that I, I share a name with, he went coast guard, coast guards in Toledo they do really cool stuff. They say lives. I'm going to join the Coast Guard. And so I it was like summer of 94 for the first time. I thought I'm, I'm going to go enlist. And I talked to a recruiter and they're like, all right, you know, what, what's your medical history? I'm like, well, you know, I've been diagnosed with asthma. And yeah. And right at that word, they're like, yep. See you later. Yeah. Because uh, the sea services don't take asthmatics because of the, like the breathing gear that they right. have to use when they're, when they're underway and whatnot. So that kind of closed the door on that. And then uh, we get out to out of college and I had had a job interview and they said, you know, if, if there was one thing you could do other than this, what would it be? And I was like, Coast Guard, like not even a doubt. I would, I would love to be in the Coast Guard. And, and so then when I left that job, I'm 
in 99, I'm kind of like, well, I'm moving back to Ohio. Why not try again? So I tried again and they said, yeah, still asthmatic, not going to take it. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. Like asthma hasn't bothered me in years. What's, what's the hassle. And, and so they, they shunted me into like a, a civilian volunteer arm of the Coast Guard called the Auxiliary. And I, I got to do that. And, and I started getting good at things. And I started getting qualified on things. And the guys around the station were like, dude, you should just enlist. And I'm not going to say the name, obviously, but there was this one guy at the station who was just a complete blank up an idiot. And every one of the guys I would work with on a shift, they're like, dude, you're smarter than him. You're in better shape than him. You, why can't you do this? And 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 so I tried one more time and I tried to lie my way past the the uh, the asthma question. And then we got to the point where it's you realize under penalty of perjury and military law that everything here has to be accurate. And I told the truth and I was rejected for service my third and final final time. Okay. And that was that was coming near the end of my journalism career and near the beginning of this teaching career. And I was working with a a lot of guys at that point in my life who had been gifted athletes in high school and people who were prior service. And I absolutely 110% found myself lacking in comparison to them that these guys are real men and I'm not. And I started really kind of like, trying to at least talk the talk and just, uh, you know, S talk about all kinds of issues, you know, cuss all the time and just try to <laughs> like mirror what they were doing. And inside of me this whole time throughout like the early and mid two thousands going up to the late two thousands, like I had internalized that there was something wrong with me because so many of my friends, Oh, one, um, many, many of my friends had, had deployed to Afghanistan by Oh two other friends were in Iraq by Oh three Oh four Oh five. And all of these guys got to answer for themselves in the, in the crucible, they got to answer the question, am I a coward or not mm-hmm. in the most profound way? And I was jealous of them. I was insanely jealous that these guys had gotten the chance to prove they were not cowards. And I didn't that my generation finally had its war and I didn't get to go. And, and it was, it was emasculating in so many ways. And then I get diagnosed with cancer and it wasn't right away, but after, especially after the, the inpatient treatment in, in 2012 up in Michigan, like Maybe, maybe I was just meant. Yeah. And well, yeah, that's one hell of a test. And and the funny thing is sometimes it is, but most of the time it isn't. There's, there's moments that are really sucky. Like being told you have cancer is really sucky um and then anytime it gets worse and and that's my disease has kind of been a a slow sloping thing instead of a dramatic decline thing and and every time it's another step down the slope it sucks but then you kind of level out and get used to it and and so 
yeah, there's moments where your courage to some degree and your faith to an enormous degree are tested. But yeah, I guess I guess this was my war. Well, you know, you're downplaying tremendously like what I know to be true because you've had these incredible, you know, you had that whole thing with your leg, which was the most gruesome thing I've ever seen. And then <laughs> yeah. also, you know, just little things like I know you struggle with like incredible restless legs at night and I have a mild version of that and it drives you bonkers. Um, so I think, you know, you've just got the kind of attitude that you're just like, it's not that bad. Like, I know you're not, you're being completely honest when you say that, but I'm just thinking of the things that you say in parsing. And I'm like, any one of those things would have wiped me out a hundred fifty <laughs> times. So you do have, you do have kind of a remarkable spirit and attitude about things that is, um, you know, above average i would say I, I i really think it's a survival instinct and it's like it's working you can either you. you can either just let this disease kill your body you know there's not not much you can do about killing your body but the one thing you kind of have control over is your spirit and yeah and that's the one thing we've tried tried to control throughout this um now you call it the terrible privilege yeah. The terrible privilege, which you said from the Avengers. From the Avengers. Tell me more so, about the terrible privilege. Nerds, you you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> in in the first Avengers movie, Tony Stark and, and Bruce Banner are in a lab and they're talking about their different approaches to their superpower. Tony embraces the fact that he was mortally wounded and out of that wound came his power. Whereas Bruce will do anything to avoid confronting the awful things that led to his power. He, he goes absolutely out of his way to, to ever let his power be seen or used. And, and Tony starts trying to convince him, you, you got to let that rage. You got to You got to embrace that thing. And he says, what he says to Bruce Banner, we have this terrible privilege. And, and those words resonated with me when I, that movie came out, uh, you know, two summers after I was diagnosed. And the minute he uttered those words, I was like, that is exactly what cancer is because you get this awful diagnosis and you realize that your, your mortality is real and that there's a clock ticking. And one reaction to that is the Bruce Banner reaction, ignore it, crawl into a hole, you know, crawl into a ball and, and disappear into a hole. Yeah. Um, but the other reaction is the Tony Stark reaction, which is embrace it and realize that you have the gift of realizing, you know, there's a there's a billion poor suckers running around out there that think they're never going to die. And so they never do anything meaningful. And once you have that realization that you're going to die, you get to make that choice. I can I, I get the window into mortality. I know this is temporary and I'm going to try and make every second count. And yeah, you and you certainly seem to be be very cognizant of that and be doing all you can to make it count. Um, you know, I, it strikes me that this is, you know, like you say, there's there's all these suckers running around feeling immortal and any one of them could die in two minutes from now. Um, right. And, you know, you may very well outlive me, you know, is what we've said. It's just there's just really no guarantees in life. So. Right. And I think this is true of any kind of 
of hardship that every single one of us has experienced um, that we can take it as this terrible hardship that's destroyed us and been so horrible and painful and traumatic and, you know, um, which may all well be true. But at the same time, with every hardship, there is a terrible privilege in it that you have an increase for you. It's this constant cognizance of the preciousness of time which makes you live very well um but you know with any kind of hardship comes some gift attached i'm tr- i truly believe that like i, an I increase agree totally. in empathy and ability to to be a hero for some other person who doesn't feel understood by anybody else like every single thing that comes to us is it you know like you say every hardship is a terrible privilege that we can decide whether it's just plain terrible or whether we're going to tack the privilege on and, and do what we can with it. So that, you know, that really, that, that, that's what you said about that. I just think of this every single day because I've, I, my last podcast, I discussed how May is particularly triggering and difficult for me. And I'm like, right. but all the things that have happened in the past during May or thereabouts, um, may feel terrible, but such a privilege because I've learned so much about, how to help people and how to help myself and how precious the good times are and, and all that stuff. So it's really kind of adjusted my, my mentality, you know? Um, so thank you for that. And I think also, well, I said to you, you know, have you read the last lecture? And I, it's before even the words were out of my mouth, I was rolling my eyes at myself and rolling <laughs> your eyes too. And I understand it's the most overdone thing and it's probably irritating to you on so many levels. But but God bless him for blazing that trail. God bless him for making it possible for us to talk about this stuff. Right, right. That's that's actually, that's so true. Because what is it about, I mean, now I'm going on a little tangent. We'll get back to what I was going to say. But what is it about the fact that we're so weirded out by talking about death and and me, you know... what when we are all guaranteed to do this this is the one like thing we've all got 100 percent in common like a guarantee thing it ends the same way for all of us like we are all gonna die yeah yeah and it's crazy we do not talk about it we cannot talk about it and um but what i asked you about was i said you know the one thing that really stayed with me if i i can't remember anything else about that book except for one thing that just made this huge impact when he was standing at a checkout and they overcharged him by $15 and he was, he had to wait for the manager to come. And, and he suddenly went, I make good money. And I honestly do not have time for this $15. You know, like I've got better things to do with my life than stand around waiting for somebody to reimburse me $15. And I said, you know, you're a teacher and you've got a family to provide for you. don't, you know, whatever. Um, so fifteen, your $15, you'd probably stand around and wait for that. What is your equivalent? What is your $15? And I and, loved your answer. So tell me, tell me, what is your fifteen dollars? And it and it and it's time. Yeah. And this is part of the uh, the part part of the profession of being a history teacher. If you think about time a lot, yeah. Um, but my, my thing is time. And there's there are so many little things in our day, and especially those of you who have children know exactly what I'm talking about here, where your kids are constantly demanding of this bit of your time, this bit of your time, this bit of your time. And I know that pre-cancer, when I, when I was having 
a bad night or not even a bad night. If I was just into reading a book or I was into something on television, Hey, you want to play catch? Not really. Take your brother out there and go play. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I, I sloughed off and man, that time, like I'm at the point now where unless I am totally bed bound and the kid says, do you want to come outside with me? The answer is always going to be yes. Like that's, that's one thing I can do and is, is spend time. And so like I have, I have tried to pack little adventures into their lives for the past seven years, even if it's just an adventure of you know, driving up to a river near here and going out and walking on the rocks. Or well, one day we, we hopped in the car and I didn't tell them where we were going and we drove to Iowa and back wow. in a day just because we could like, like their time is, is so precious. Like we all think we've got plenty of it and we don't. And when you, when you get to where I am, where you are potentially looking at, 18 months you realize what a valuable resource time and is. time spent with the people that are most important yes absolutely. you know after our conversation and i think it was weird because it was actually the, the day of our conversation i had been walking in the woods and and i had this bizarre epiphany like i'd stopped and i saw this tree and it, it was a totally unremarkable tree and it had bloomed leaves just ordinary green leaves but because it's been such a long winter um i was just astounded by it like i was captivated by it and actually reached out and touched the leaves <laughs> and was just like oh my god and- can i even t- can i even tell you what spring is like when you've had a diagnosis like this like it's it's that literal in your face things coming back to life right? again and just I was, I was never a person who got sad during winters. I loved winters, but oh my God, every winter since diagnosis, it's like, am I ever going to see the sun again? Is that that a thing for me in the past? Yeah. Yes. Watching the leaves come out on any stupid tree is amazing. It it is. It really is. And I think it's, especially after, you know, the, the particularly very long winter that we've had before things have finally bloomed. Even my 14-year-old son yeah. was just gushing about it on the way home from school today, you know, and for a 14-year-old boy, he was just like, there's leaves on the trees, things are blooming. He was just waxing lyrical about it. But I reached out and I touched this leaf, these leaves and I suddenly just got this weird, like, just this epiphany or this just crazy thought that just knocked me out and went you don't have time for anything in your life but good like productive um good things like you just don't have time for toxic stuff look how beautiful this is look how many beautiful things there are and it was just apropos of nothing it just came and then that same night I spoke to you and it was just this kind of it just felt like very much a message from you know somewhere um that, you know, we just don't have time for toxicity. And, you know, I think of all the times I've spent fighting with people on Facebook and ridiculous nonsense. That. Yeah. And I'm like, for goodness sake, there's so many wonderful things. And there's that quote that is, the problem is you think you have time. I, I don't remember. Yes. But, yeah, that's the problem. And you, you know, the, the, the terrible privilege is you've realized. Um, and like you said, like I've said, you might have way more time than I do but you have used it you are just so cognizant of it and I think when you said that about the kids 
I burst into tears, which is not my way because I, I have this weird thing about crying publicly in the last couple of years. I'm just really private about it. And it was just like yeah. I said, I realized how many times um, I, I just, I picked up Ella the other day to dance with her in the kitchen. And I, I, I said, I don't remember the last time I picked up Finney. And this might be the last time I pick up Ella, you know, and I don't remember the last yeah. I don't remember the last time ever that I, I picked up Ben and held and threw him in the air. I don't remember, you know, and, and you don't realize that moment. And you and when your kid asks to play with you or read a book, maybe that's the last time they ever do. Maybe that's the last time yes. they ever do. And, and what if you say no? And it was just like, I just remember bursting into tears and I felt so bad. I was like, oh my gosh, like now I am like getting all maudlin on you. And you're like, listen, lady. <laughs> <laughs> oh no 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 no, no. <laughs> that's that's what i no that's what i hope that's i'm i i feel blessed when people understand that like yes now you get it you totally yes. get it like this could be and so when you blow your kid off because you're watching something or you're just doing nonsense online you don't know maybe they yeah. outgrow the desire for you to do whatever it is they just asked you. And, oh, yeah. And so, yeah, the terrible privilege is indeed terrible and indeed a beautiful, beautiful privilege. So I don't know if you want to talk about this, and if not, we can easily edit it out. But we were talking about spirituality and your sort of concept, which I found so beautiful because in the last few years, you know, I went from being this very, very devout Mormon where everything was pretty much explained. You know, it was just like, you know, exactly yeah. what the plan is. And it's, it's very clear. And it's, and um, to becoming, I'd say briefly, just a very bitter atheist. And I'd say now more agnostic. I am a deeply spiritual person. And I do believe that the, the goodness is an incredibly you know it's a it's a it's a, a tangible power in this world um yeah and so i was really curious as to your catholic as to your kind of perception of god and spirituality i just thought you had such a refreshing inst- interesting take and i'm not sure if you're comfortable talking about that at large yeah no i'm okay. fine with that i'm fine with that i so i was i i am a uh a product of a Jesuit education. Oh, lovely. And lovely. the and so I'm I'm I I am definitely a very specific kind of Catholic out of that out of that Jesuit upbringing. And um yeah the Jesuits the Jesuits motto in Latin is uh ad maiorum de gloria or you know uh, God in all things. And there's kind of this Ignatian belief that anything you do if you intend it to be holy is for the greater glory of God. And that that is something that I find incredibly useful in 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 the most mundane things what we do in the in the painful things that we do that those if we if we intend them as holy they become holy. Um, now, as as a kid raised Catholic, you're raised with fairly strict Trinitarian views, um, and I feel like in all of Christianity we emphasize one or two parts of the Trinity over all others. And that's God and Jesus, that it becomes a God and Jesus yeah. show. And for any of us to, to understand God, I think is, is intellectually impossible. Um, I, I, I had a very good friend once this was, I was dealing with a problem pro ca- pre-cancer that 
seems completely inconsequential <laughs> now. And I went to this friend and I'm like, I don't understand God. I don't understand what he wants out of this. And he says to me, Joe, if you understand God, we're all effed. <laughs> and I, I, I found that to be an incredibly useful way to think about God, that God is not knowable to us. And then there's Jesus, who's the historical figure, who's the you know, foundation of everything. And it's, it's hard to have the relationship there. And it wasn't really until I got sick that I started focusing on, on the Holy Spirit and the idea of the Holy Spirit. And as this was going on, my pastor was, was passing things on to me that he thought I would find useful that were kind of like my, my vibe. And one of the things that he had passed along was, was something by a pastor. And I can't remember the guy's name, but he was talking about, you know, the, the Greeks word for the spirit was the same word as the Greeks word for breathing or air or wind. And that in the new Testament, when the spirit arrives, the spirit arrives in the wind. And when you, when you think about the wind, when you think about the way, you know, our lives kind of blow into each other, somebody blows into your life and they blow out, or, you know, you, you get blown into this opportunity or blown away from this one and you get, you know, blown into whatever emergency or blessing or amazing thing in your life. Um, what is that wind that's, that's propelling you? I, I view that as the spirit. And if, if you are a, if you really believe in the Trinity, then the spirit and Jesus and God are, are one of the same. They are, are separate ways to understand the same oneness. And, and, and so I guess I've stopped trying to understand God and to a large degree. I've, I've, I'm fascinated by the historical life of Jesus, but I don't think I can understand it, but I can understand the wind and I can understand those, that there's this wind that blows us into connection with each other. And that's, that's where I find God. I love that because that suddenly I was like, yes, this, you just verbalized my whole spiritual sort of outlook, which I couldn't put a pin in. Like I couldn't figure out how to articulate it or even I couldn't figure it out for myself. And the word is pneuma, didn't you say pneuma? Yes, yes. Okay. Yep. So, and I was just like, because I honestly do believe in, you know, this, this, this concept of blowing into each other's lives and, 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 you know, you can resist that and you can, if something blows into your life and it's supposed to be there, or you have the opportunity to be kind or good to a person or reach out and get slightly out of your comfort zone, um, this amazing thing could happen. Um, so you have the opportunity to watch your spirit or, um, or to embrace it and to just discover where it goes. And I think that's, that to me is, um, I don't know, that's just been a whole different way of looking at spirituality and has really made me kind of much more conscious of, of re- just making choices. Like the wind will blow people into you and then what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do with yeah. that? What are you going to do with that? We still have this agency. This concept of agency is very, very big in, in my, you know, religious background um, where you can choose. But but I just love this idea that, you you know, that you're just very, very accepting with not knowing. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's it's very healing to me. So thank you for that. You're quite welcome thank, um, thank thank the jesuits 20 miles up yeah, the road <laughs> the jesuits know what's going on it seems i've only heard very good things um 
So um, speaking of comfort zones that I was just talking about, you know, being blown out of it, running was your running was your happy place. Right. And, and I, every single time I run, I say a silent prayer to whatever is out there. Please ev- don't ever let me not be able to run because I don't know what to do. You know, how will I be, how will I come to, you know, come to my, it, wherever my divinity is, wherever I meet my maker or yeah. whatever it is, is when I'm running. That is, you know, and so when I stop running, yep. you know, I'm in self-destruct mode and it's very, very bad. Yep. But um, running was that for you. And now it's not an option. Yeah. And so I'm like transfixed with how do you survive post running? Because it could happen to me tomorrow. And the funny thing was the answer, the answer got blown to me. It was, um, so it was just this November was when running finally became completely undoable for me. And um, the summer before that, just kind of on a lark, I had thought, you know, I played the guitar like when I was in eighth grade and took lessons. I was never any good at it. I'd like, I'd like to give it a shot again. And so I, I bought a guitar and um, ever since November, I I kind of, and, and even last summer, it's almost like last summer was preparing me for this. Um, I started getting more serious about spending 20 minutes a day, especially over the summer. I spent 20 to 40 minutes every day practicing and playing and, by no stretch am I good at it and I can't play anything that involves a bar chord, but it became fun and therapeutic because like performing music and running are similar for me in that I'm not good at them. Number one, and number two, (laughs) I can't think about anything else when I do it because running is so unnatural to me that when I did it, I had to focus on not falling down for six hours during a marathon or whatever. I couldn't think about anything else. And, and I'm so bad at music that I have to concentrate so hard to do it that any 20 minutes I'm playing guitar, I'm not thinking about the feeling in my lungs or, Oh, I side effects are a little rough today. I can't think about it when I do that. And it's, it's such an amazing an amazing gift to have to just have something to take take me away from i think you said i wrote this down you said when you leave your comfort zone is where you can find your joy and your bliss and your escape from pain and that's such a you know that's such a counterintuitive statement like when we leave our comfort zone is where we truly do find the escape from and but it's so true every time we kind of scoot out of the comfort zone we are preoccupied with our survival to the point that, you know, we, we have to be present, um, that forcing yourself to be present. And that's what, you know, I found jujitsu did it. I told you, you know, you're just so focused, you're just so yeah. focused on not dying. <laughs> right. So right. To me last year, this time, because I had to be so completely present. Um, yeah. But, you know, you can't ever before when you're living in your comfort zone, um, it's very, very hard actually to be present because you're so used to it. You're so accustomed to it that your mind, your mind yeah. can wander wherever it wants to go. And usually it wants to go on some dark, sad little walks. Yes. So, you know, getting out of the comfort zone, man, that's where you find your escape from pain. When you said that, I was like, yeah. what? 
brilliance is that? Like, put it on all the pillows. Let's embroider it. Like, escape, you know, find your escape from pain when you get out of your comfort zone. And maybe that's where we should leave this. I think that's a great place to leave Um, it. A challenge to everybody out there. You think you have time. That's the problem. Um, So get out of your comfort zone. Stay present. Be as awesome as Joe Boyle if you can possibly (laughs) even fat. No, there's no way. Nobody can be. There's one Joe Boyle. Low bar. one Joe Boyle. And I am so incredibly privileged that I've spent yet another, what what is this, 76 minutes in your radiant presence. Thank you so much. Oh, likewise. I feel exactly the same way. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. And please thank your absolutely remarkable family, your beautiful wife, your crazy, awesome kids um, for sacrificing this time. Um, I am so grateful to all of you. It's just such, such a gift. Oh, thank you. I will. I will pass along. And we wish you just everything, everything good. We are all rooting so hard for you, and may the winds blow ever in your favor. Thank you so much, (laughs) Kirsty. Take care. Have a wonderful evening. You too. Good Good night.